Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11. Today we come to the third friend, uh, Zophar the Namathite, who takes his shot at Job. And he comes out blasting. As one writer put it, like a leopard springing from ambush upon its unsuspecting prey, Zophar enters the debate clawing and scratching for Job's jugular vein. I mean, this man is going in for the kill. Another writes, it is clear from his graceless tirade that he has been impatient to get at a man whom he once respected but whose whining inability to recognize the danger he was in had canceled out any sympathy he may have had for him. You see, Zophar has been sitting there listening. First of all, he heard Job's opening statement, his primal scream, then Eliphaz's speech, Job's response, then Bildad's speech, and Job's response, and he can't take it anymore. It's his turn, and he's going to let Job have it. Where the first two friends, Eliphaz and Bildad, tried to make Job feel guilty, you know, by putting forth the formula that sin equals suffering, or the reverse, suffering equals sin, that is, there must be sin, that's why you're suffering, Zophar basically tries to bludgeon Job with verbal violence. And I think this is, if I could summarize this chapter in two words, it would be verbal violence. I mean... There is real violence and antagonism, hostility in this chapter. Zophar is really mad at Job, that Job is protesting that he is innocent. Um, And particularly, I think, in the last section where Job very daringly seems to attack God, to take him on. And and Zophar is offended by this. And so he comes out blasting at, at Job. For him, it is a simplistic black and white world of absolute righteousness. Let's read the first four verses as he gives his opening statement. Then Zophar, the the Amethyte, replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. We'll stop there. This is, I think, the opening uh, salvo and, and his attack on Job. He begins, I think, in a sense, by mocking Job because what we saw last week at the end of chapter 10, you know, Job says, I wish that God would give me a little peace before I go to death. And in describing death, he describes it in sort of four stages or four different descriptions. Um, it is the land of gloom and deep shadow, the land of deepest night, of deepest shadow and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. And to match those four descriptions of where Job thinks he's going to go after he dies, not to heaven, certainly not to heaven, but to the place of deepest darkness where God sends his worst enemies. Zophar now opens with four uh, descriptions, if you wish, four sounds of, of Job's prattling or babbling on. Unnecessary words. He says all these words, empty words, a man who is full of talk. We have in the King James, false words, your idle talk. In the King James, again, it has your lies. And then mocking words, when you mock. 
So he comes out by saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the four types of darkness there and death. Let's talk about the four types of babbling you've been doing, Job. We're going to have to put up with this. I think it's worth noting that in the English translations, the focus, at least, and I think culturally, as we read it, seems to be on him speaking too much, on, on too much speaking, on, on his wordiness. That, you know, do we have to keep listening to this guy babbling on? But in the Old Testament, the expressions that are used are not simply someone who talks too much. There are moral implications. Okay. Uh, he begins by saying, do we have to listen? You know, are all these words to go unanswered? And literally, the expression is, uh, are we to listen to this man of lips? Uh, because lips in the Old Testament, particularly when used in describing someone talking, I guess the equivalent in English would be someone flapping their lips, you know, flapping their gums. It's someone who talks too much and usually has nothing good to say. In Ecclesiastes, we are told words from a wise man's mouth are gracious, but a fool is consumed by his own lips. In Proverbs 13, he who guards his lips guards his life, but he uh, who speaks rashly uh, will go to ruin. Then when it talks about all of this babbling that he's doing, idle talk and these things, uh, in the Old Testament, a person who talks too much, that, is, that has moral implications. Uh, I love this verse in Proverbs 10. It's one that I should probably have tattooed somewhere on my body where I can see it all the time. When words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. So you see, when, when Zophar talks about Job's babbling, he's not simply saying he's talking too much. There are moral implications. Again, in Ecclesiastes, the teacher tells us, let your words be few. And then he says, as a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. Now, many words, a lot of talking. There's, there's something not good going on there. Bildad told Job, your words are a blustering wind. In other words, you're a windbag. You're full of hot air. And while this is sort of a, a put down, it's derogatory. Um, it suggests that what Job says shouldn't be taken seriously. But for Zophar, this is we're in a different category altogether. He is making a moral judgment on what Job has said. And he pronounces him false and mocking. See, to, jo to Zophar, Job is not simply someone who is talking. He is a heretic and a blasphemer. And all these words that he's speaking are proof that he is, in fact, a heretic and a blasphemer. But Zophar makes a critical mistake. And I think this is something for us to learn here today. Because he is angry at Job, his anger pushes him to an extreme position. And it is an extreme position that he must now defend. And in order to defend it, he uses exaggeration. And I think in any type of communication, that is not helpful. When you find yourself pushed into a corner and you come out blasting and you're, you, you are angry and you use exaggeration, <coughs> not a lot is going to be accomplished, at least not positively. And so what we find him doing in the rest of this chapter 
is that Zophar exaggerates God's justice, he exaggerates God's wisdom, and he exaggerates God's promises. And in the process, I think, does incredible damage. First of all, exaggerating God's justice. We'll begin in verse 4, which we've already read, but verse 4. You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. We'll stop there. Zophar begins by violating one of the cardinal rules of debate, negotiation, counseling, communication, any interaction between human beings. And that is he allows his anger to push him into a position of overcommitment. And then he breaks another good rule of communication. He puts words in Job's mouth. I think communication breaks down and hope for communication really begins to fade when one person says about the other person, you said such and such. I think it's much more helpful for us to say, if I heard you right, I think you said, I, I thought I heard you say such and such. Because being human beings, uh, and I'm certainly guilty of this, we rarely repeat back what, the way we hear it. You know, when somebody tells us something and then we repeat it back to them, it's already got all our interpretation, all our coloring with it, and it never comes out quite the way they said it to us in the first place. So Zophar, as he remembers it, he remembers Job saying, you said to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Um, in the King James, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in thine eyes. And Job has, I mean, Job is convinced that his reasoning is right and that his heart is righteous. But he never uses the word flawless or pure or clean when he describes himself. He uses the word blameless. And this is a word that is used in the first chapter, uh, not only by the writer of the book of Job, but by God himself when he's speaking to Satan. But blameless doesn't mean perfect. It speaks of someone who has integrity and that Job sees himself as a man of integrity. God saw him as a man of integrity. Job is not saying I am morally pure, that I am morally without any fault. And this is important because Job has never said Okay, in, in this whole debate, he has never said, I've, I, don't, I don't sin. I've not committed any sins. That's not the issue here. The issue is, Job is saying, if you say punishment is the result of sin, I've not done anything to deserve this type of punishment. That's what Job is arguing. But Zophar has misheard him. He has misinterpreted him. And now he misquotes him as he makes his argument. Job never said, I am pure in God's sight. Well, now having misquoted Job, because he speaks for Job, we shouldn't be surprised that now Zophar speaks for God. Well, why shouldn't he? He's taking an extreme position. He's going to do the talking for everybody. Nobody gets a chance to say anything here. It doesn't start out that way, I think, in verse number five. He wants God to speak. Oh, I wish that God would speak and that he would open his lips against you. 
and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. I think Zophar wants God to speak, but since God hasn't spoken, Zophar is going to jump in there and do it for him. He wishes that God would speak. That's all that Job has been wanting all along, that God would somehow explain to him what's going on. But Zophar says, even though he's not speaking, I know what he would say. And this is what God would say. It's interesting, and there's an interesting expression here that... uh, most of the books that I read this past week don't deal with. This is an aside here, a parenthesis. We have books called commentaries that are written about different parts of the Bible. And generally speaking, they are helpful. But I found over the years a general rule. When you come to a really difficult passage, they tend to skip it. Okay. They're not always a lot of help. And in this particular passage, they're not much help because I'm really intrigued by the expression for true wisdom has two sides. He just sort of throws that in there. It's like, and what are you trying to say? And so I'm, so I'm looking through these. What, what does that mean? And nobody will explain this to me. But one man does suggest something. And I think it makes sense that there are two sides to God's wisdom. The side that he reveals to us and the side that he keeps to himself. The passage, Paz mentioned it in Bible study the other day, uh, Deuteronomy 29.29, that the revealed things of God belong to us and our children. The secret things belong to God. So God has revealed his wisdom to us, part of it, but he's kept part of it back. And Zophar is saying there are two sides to wisdom, the part he's revealed and the part he hasn't. But then he goes on to imply, but I know the part he hasn't revealed. Because the very next statement is, know this. Okay, and he's making a pronouncement. God has even forgotten some of your sin. Okay, Job, you don't know why God's doing this, but, but I do. Okay, I know. A warning here. I think I would warn you to be careful of anyone who claims to know the secret things of God. Someone who claims to know what God is thinking. Privileged information can become a vicious weapon, particularly when it is used to protect our own self-interest. Perhaps you've not been exposed to it, but some of us have a number of people who go around saying, the Lord told me to tell you such and such. And it's uh, I've always been amazed the times I've experienced it, that God always tells this person that I have to do something for them, that apparently God never says to them that they should do something for me. Um, So privileged information, I think, becomes a really dangerous weapon when it's to protect your own self-interest. I've got a project here and God told me, by the way, you all need to give me money for my project. Just be very leery of someone who claims to know something that... That really they have no right to know. What Zophar understands from the secret wisdom of God is that Job hasn't gotten half of what he deserves. That God could give, God could do far worse to Job, but God has even forgotten some of his sins. Really? And and how exactly does Zophar know this? Where does he have this information? Now, from the standpoint of the New Testament, We know far more than Zophar and Job and all of them. We know that our sins deserve death. The wages of sin is death. 
I don't think they had that understanding at that, at that time. What they did understand is that if you commit a sin, there will be consequences. And if you obey God, there will also be consequences. And generally speaking, that is true. But Zophar, without realizing it, has really contradicted himself. Because by arguing that, Job, you are suffering for your sins, and then saying, but you're not suffering nearly enough because God's forgotten some of your sins, he has taken God from being a God of justice, and he's, ex he's expanded it and exaggerated to the point that he's contradicted himself and say, well, but God does forget some sins. A God of justice would never forget a single sin at all. And actually, in trying to refute Job's position so far without even realizing it, and I think it's because he's just so mad, has actually given support to Job's position. Well, he not only exaggerates God's justice, he exaggerates God's wisdom. And we find this uh, beginning in verse number 7 and going through verse 12. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. If he comes along and confines you in prison and convenes a court, who can oppose him? Surely he recognizes deceitful men, and when he sees evil, does he not take note? But a witless man can no more become wise than a wild donkey's colt can be born a man. This is an amazing section in, the, in this chapter because Zophar begins by praising God's wisdom and then ridiculing Job's attempts to understand God's wisdom. And then he claims to know God's wisdom or to know God's mind. He begins by extolling the wisdom and power of God. And he begins, I think, with the stuff of hymns. You could actually write a hymn from this particular passage. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? They are higher than the heavens. They are deeper than the depths of the grave. Um, and he actually uses four dimensions. You know, they are higher, they're wider, they're deeper. You know, the four dimensions. He said God's wisdom is just more than we could imagine. Qualitatively, it is greater. It is different from any human wisdom that we might know about. Having said that, he then sort of turns on Job and mocks him. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? What can you know? But then Zophar says, I can. I can know. I can probe the mysteries of the Almighty. I can know these things. Uh, surely he recognizes deceitful men. And when he sees evil, does he not take note? Job wants to know, but he cannot. And Zophar claims that he does know. And I think the anger and the exaggeration of Zophar's speech, if, you've, if you haven't bought my thesis at this point, really comes through in verse number 12. The verbal violence leads to what one writer calls a careless curse. But a witless man can no more become wise than a wild donkey's colt can be born a man. He essentially is calling, as one writer puts it, Job an empty-headed ass. You're just 
you're just as foolish and as empty-headed as a donkey. Job, you cannot know the wisdom of God. I know, but you cannot. Lastly, in verses 13 through 19, as his two friends have done, Zophar exaggerates God's promises. Let's begin reading in verse 13. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then he will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope. You will look about you and take your rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court your favor. Having called Job an empty-headed donkey, he now says, come back. You need to repent. You need to return to God. And he gives them the four necessary steps in verses uh, 13 and 14. This is what you need to do to come back to God, that you need to devote your heart to him. You need to stretch out and reach your hands out to him, put away sin that is in your hand, and allow no sin to dwell in your tent. And on some levels, Zophar is right. This, you could preach this. I mean, this would make a good sermon, a four-point outline on, on calling people to repentance. But what he's talking about is ritual. It's going through the motions in many places. Righteousness for Zophar is a question of doing the right thing. There is little place for having a right relationship with God. That is a relationship between God and man. For him, justice rules whatever dealings there are between God and man, and it's all black and white. You follow the rules, you keep the rules, you get rewarded, you break the, rule, the rules, you get in trouble. For so far, that's the way it works. So, Job, if you, do, if you follow my four-step program... This is what will happen to you. One could almost imagine, uh, almost on a sort of on a game game show, we'll say. And what prizes do we have for Job if he does these things? And he gives a list here, and it is an amazing list. You will lift up your face without shame. By the way, in some cultures, shame is an important thing. Perhaps not in ours, but it is in others. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble. Life will be brighter than noonday. You will become secure. You will take your rest and safety. You will lie down and no one will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. Job, come back to God and you will have more than you could imagine. By the way, do these words sound familiar at all? In the time and place in which we live, I think we hear these promises made by others in God's name. Prosperity is touted as proof of, of faith and success, status, and security are promoted as automatic results of dependence upon God. If you trust God, if you have faith in God, you will have these things. Of course, I find it interesting that success and status and security are defined by us rather than by God. So that if, if we depend on God, then God will, in fact, allow us to have the things that we want.
We hear people promising healing. Those who suffer are told that if they will but trust God, then they need never suffer again. How unrealistic this is and how unfair it is to God. Because faith in God is not put on one side of the scale and then on the other side we find prosperity, status, security, success and all of these other things. If we do that, basically we paint God into a corner and we say to God, God, you can only do these things in my life. If I put my trust in you, then you can only give me good things. You can only do the things that I want. And then we become God because we dictate to him what he can and cannot do. If we but look at the life of Jesus when he was here on earth, we see him identifying with the least the poor, the sinners, the rejects of society. And for the religious establishment who had painted God into a corner, this was unacceptable. They could not accept that someone whom, I mean, he was a good man and he did these wonderful things, but why would he hang out with these lowlifes? Why, why would he do that? For them, God would have no interest in such people. I think we are to identify with Christ, with his compassion and his suffering. Not only in the lives of others, but in our own lives. And understand that God has made promises and these promises have been fulfilled in the lives of his people. But just because I trust in God doesn't mean I can only expect the things I want. Zophar, as with Eliphaz and Bildad, have a religion of self-interest. With the burning question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? A mature faith, I think, looks to a progressing relationship, a growing relationship, not a system of rewards. I found a quote I found intriguing. As mutual trust develops between God and us, he permits us to be tested and we remain true. Keep in mind that Job is suffering because of God's confidence in him, not because of his sin. We are to have faith in God, but in some sense that I don't understand, God has faith in us, confidence in us. And he puts us in situations that we would never choose in a million years. But he does that because he has confidence in us. And we may not like it, but we should not limit God and say, God, you can only treat me this way. Do not dare to treat me this way. I believe in you, therefore I can only get good things from you. But for Zophar, this does not compute. And so he rages against Job. He cannot believe this man. How dare this man contradict the system? And just in my, in my life, I have noticed that oftentimes the people who are most uh, hostile, who are most vocal in putting out uh, their arguments, oftentimes they lack a security of belief. I mean, why are you, Zophar, why is it such a big deal to you? I think Job challenges something that he holds to, the black and white system. I'm good, God treats me well. I do bad, God punishes me. And suddenly we have something that violates all the rules. We have a good man 
who is in a horrible situation. I think this chapter ends appropriately because if you remember uh, several weeks ago, Job was looking for hope and he said, if only there was someone to arbitrate between us, between us, between me and, and God. Zophar has no sense of grace. And uh, the quote I had at the beginning, this is a graceless tirade. There is no grace in his speech. I think the only good thing I can say about Zophar is that he didn't bring Job's kids into it. Eliphaz and Bildad both did that. But there is no compassion in this man. And if you doubt it, look at the last verse, verse number 20. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. Yeah, Job, you want you want hope, don't you? You want someone to mediate between you and God. You're a wicked man, Job. And there's little or no hope for you. What are we to make about this of this man so far? Well, it's, it's difficult because on the one hand, he says some very good things. And on the other hand, he says some atrocious things. He is right. The life of faith is to be based on repentance and faith. We are to turn from sin. Sin is not to dwell in our tent. We are to trust in God. God does give. Blessings of hope, security, and peace. Not necessarily the way we define them, but God does. But Zophar is so wrong when he forgets that God sometimes allows unpredictable and seemingly unfair suffering. But perhaps the biggest mistake is that he presumes that the answer for Job is repentance. Job, I know what's wrong with you. You need to repent. And what can we learn from this chapter, from this, this angry man, this graceless man? Well, I think a couple things. I, I think, yes, the place of repentance is critical. And I think in the modern church, we may have forgotten that. That oftentimes the gospel is presented as you've got a problem, Christ will solve it. Instead of, you're a sinner. You're in rebellion against God. And you need to turn away from that and turn and repent. And secondly, I think what we should learn from Zophar is we don't have all the answers. We do not have all the answers. In closing, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 13. This was our reading from the New Testament today. Uh, it just happened that we were, had extended a bit, not much. I think it fits so beautifully with what Zophar does wrong. Jesus does right. The first uh, five verses. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower of Sil in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus does not presume, and I'm reading into the text, but I don't think it's a stretch. These people come and tell Jesus about 
Oh, did you hear what these guys, these Galileans, instead of sacrificing at the temple, they sacrificed over here and Pilate heard about it. Apparently there's some political overtones and he went out there and he slaughtered them. And the unspoken question is, they were wicked men, weren't they? And Jesus does not enter into, he doesn't say, yes, they were wicked men. Instead, he says, do you think they were worse than everybody else? No, that's not why that happened. Why did it happen, Jesus? He doesn't even get into that. He simply says, unless you repent, you will perish as well. And so what we learn from Zophar is repentance is important. That part Zophar's got down right. The part he doesn't have down is thinking he knows why Job is suffering. And I, I think it's a subset, but if there's one sin that the church is so guilty of in our generation, and I think it makes people sick, is that we go around claiming we know why things happen. It's a subset under arrogance. Okay, I mean, arrogance is, to me, just one of the big sins of the church in this generation. And, and we had example last year where we had two prominent religious leaders who theologically we would agree with for the most part, who made the great pronouncement that September 11 happened because it's God's judgment on America. Really? I, do you know that more people died, I think, in the month after that in car accidents than died on September 11th in that? Is, is that God's judgment as well? I know it's tempting. It's tempting to pontificate and to say, I know why that happened. And the fact is, you haven't got a clue, generally speaking. And it's not our place to make pronouncements. It is our place to say to people, unless you repent, you will perish as well. When Jesus began to preach, what was the first thing that Jesus preached when he began to preach? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That as God's people, we need to tell people you're fighting against God. You're in rebellion against God. You don't, perhaps you don't even know it. Turn away from being self-absorbed and being your own God and turn to the true and living God. The church needs to repent of this pontificating business. We need to understand that every day in our lives as Christians, we are to be repenting. Of our sins. We are to be examples to those around us. I think the church quit repenting some years ago, and so we have little to say about that to the world. Instead, we go around saying, I know why that happened to you. There are two sides to wisdom. They're revealed in the secret, and I know the secret part, and I know why that happened to you. I will tell you as a pastor, people come to me and ask me, Why did this happen? And it is a great temptation. I mean, people, whatever I say, generally people will accept because they're in a time of, of tragedy or difficulty. But I have to say, I don't know. I do not know. But God knows. And we are to trust him. And Job hangs on. He trusts in the face of graceless friends. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would confess that we're not really comfortable with not knowing what's going on. 
sometimes we just want a, a hint, a, a clue, just just some sense so that we have the strength to keep going. And yet your call is to trust you and to live in faith. And when we speak to those around us who don't know you, our message is not to be, we know why things are happening to you, but rather a call to repentance, to turn away from sin and to turn to Christ. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us, forgive us for the times in which we've spoken when we should have just really been quiet. Forgive us for forgetting the message of the gospel. And that is repentance. May we not be graceless as we speak to people. May we not exaggerate as Zophar does. But may we speak with gentleness and respect. And may we call people to faith in Christ. And pray that your spirit would do his work in their lives. We thank you that in our lives, you did call us to repentance. You did call us to faith. We ask that you would call many more in this generation. Loved ones, friends, people we come in contact with. By your grace, call them to repentance. I ask that as we leave this place, your spirit and your grace would go with us. May we be lights in a world of darkness in the days to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology? Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.